see we're on a mission from God. To the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Qureshi, also known as Q. And today's guest is someone I've never actually met in real life, but we have been friends on the internet for a very long time. Please say hello to Peter Marmarek. Hey, Peter, how are you? I'm doing well. Such a delight to actually see you after all these years of just reading you. How did we meet? <laughs> I don't even know. I was trying to remember this morning. It wouldn't come back. It might have been through the, um, I can't remember the name, the podcast about the Muslim guy who was unjust, about Aideen being falsely convicted that we both followed and were great fans of. Really? Coming I, out of Washington, D.C. Uh, is that? But it might have been the political work I was doing around uh, Tikkun and Jews and Muslims. I remember sending you stuff about that early on in the relationship. Um, it's got to be at least. It might have been because Caplock's Mondays. <laughs> like six, seven, eight years. It's been a long time that we've been. Over a decade, out. for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Wow. Yeah. And I've watched you sort of have different transitions in your life. And, uh, you know, it's just you're you're a very gentle, creative kind and wise person and I am so happy that you know these are you know when people when people complain about social media I'm like no you don't understand there are some amazing people out there that I would never get to know really exactly yes for me the the best thing about social media is I was a high school teacher for 40 years or so and I can keep in touch with so many of my students who would otherwise have been completely out of my life. Yeah. Um, so that's totally wonderful. And meeting new and wonderful people like you, who I would probably never have encountered because I right. don't get down to Austin much. Um, yeah. Awesome. So, okay. Well, yeah. as you know, I start my podcast with icebreaker questions. And you do not get immunity from that, even though I know and adore you. So the first question I have to kick things off is, what is the last thing you watched on television? I got rid of my TV about 30 years ago. (laughs) So (laughs) the truth is, I can't remember. Maybe welcome back, significant. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Um, I, I, I... so I, I think I'll, I'll take it to Netflix and say I'm just working my way through Borgen, the uh, Danish TV series about a, the first female prime minister of Denmark, which is great, great watching. Okay. Yes. What's it called? Spell it Fictional. B-O-R-G-E-N. Is it, in, uh, is it in Danish? Dub. Yeah, okay. Very political, very feminist, great watching. Okay. Yeah. Ooh, I'm excited. Because I'm, I'm really, I'm, how many, how many seasons are there? Three seasons, ten episodes each. And is it done, or are they making more? I don't know. I'm two thirds of the way through. Oh. Um, yeah. How did you discover it? Friends' recommendations, the way one discovers much in social media. Indeed, indeed. Okay, uh, I cannot wait to check that out. 
because uh, I'm I'm desperately in need of some new viewing. I've, I'm just watching cartoons at this point. Okay, second icebreaker question is: What is the last book that you read? It's called Yiddish for Pirates. What? And uh, <laughs> it's narrated by a 500-year-old African gray who tells the story of Moishi, who leaves his shtetl in Russia after a bar mitzvah, goes to Spain in time to encounter the Inquisition, escapes to the New World with Columbus, all this with the parrot on his shoulder, of course, is so disgusted by what he sees happening to indigenous peoples in the New World that he becomes a pirate. And much of the book is in Yiddish, and all of it is 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 very funny, full of lines like, um, "If all you know is history, everything looks like diaspora." Wow. Which, what? Yeah. Okay. Who who wrote this book? Gary Barwin. Not not that any of it takes place in Canada, <laughs> which hasn't been discovered yet for most of the book, but it it somehow in these weird categories it counts as Canadian literature. Yeah. <laughs> So you are Canadian. Yes, yes inclusively. Let's, yes. Yeah, let's 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 clarify that for our listeners immediately because this is a completely different perspective. I, I was born in England, um, left there when I was three months old, and my parents decided to come along. And so we all moved to Canada where I grew up. I went to university in the States at MIT and then went back and worked in England for a while where I started teaching and then came back to Canada where I've lived ever since. So I have two passports, British and um, Canadian. I think, I feel like that's an important thing that people should know about you. I've only had one other Canadian on so far, the podcast, and he was amazing. So <laughs> set the bar pretty high. Okay, well, I'll <laughs> see what I can do to vault it. <laughs> well, the important thing about that conversation is that he told us about beaver tails. Do you know what this is? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I had no idea. But beaver tails were a thing. Yeah, deep fried dough with sugar on it. Um, wow. Mm. Uh, I mean, that, you know, as if we didn't need any reason to resent our Canadian neighbors more. <laughs> okay. I was thinking about the Canadian-American dynamic and remembered Robin Williams' great description of Canada as a nice apartment located just above a meth lab. I will, I will gladly take your your Canadian snark toward America. Uh, I think we've earned it. Okay, so back to Yiddish for pirates. You said it's there's large pieces of it in Yiddish. So could somebody who does not read Yiddish or understand it still enjoy the book? Oh yes, the context makes the words clear. It isn't that there's pages of it. It's that ah. a given sentence will have two or three Yiddish words in and they gradually become more familiar as they recur and you get a contextual sense of their meaning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I actually have a belief, a personal belief that Yiddish is the most satisfying language. I don't know what it is about Yiddish, but the the words are so satisfying to say in their meaning. I feel like it comes from your gut. It is interesting. My parents who were Western European Jews and they didn't speak Yiddish. They, they were contemptuous of Yiddish, which was an Eastern European, generally lower class sort of thing. So, you know, when I discovered klezmer music, the Yiddish music, and came to play this to them with great joy, it was like, what is this peculiar music you are playing us? It was nothing they'd ever come across before. Um, but Yiddish is, is satisfying. There's so many words that are used ironically. I, I, I think it has the highest percentage of irony in it of any language, which is certainly something that is a survival technique to have these days. 
I mean, mm -hmm. there's my favorite Yiddish saying is probably uh, in English, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes. I, that's the other thing about Yiddish is that it's very contemporary. Like it's something that I feel like resonates just in the times as far as the way that we're experiencing change and, uh, and uncertainty. Yes. Yes. Okay. The final icebreaker question for you is, what did you have for breakfast today? I had an omelet with feta cheese in it, served with focaccia bread with blood orange marmalade and homemade cappuccino coffee with freshly ground coffee beans. What kind of, what kind of spa are you living in? What, what? Is this how you I'm just eat? coming out of quarantine, lady. I'm roughing it. <laughs> Is this how you eat? My God, that's amazing. I'm a huge fan of cooking. Uh, mm -hmm. Blood orange marmalade, you said? Yes, it was a it was a gift from a dear friend. Shout outs to Kim, who makes great blood orange marmalade. Yeah. Wow, wow. I'm jealous. I'm jealous of your breakfast. That is a, an exceptionally good answer to that question. Okay, so the, and we're done with our icebreaker questions. And so now we can talk okay. about whatever we want. And so I guess what I want to talk to you about is why the hell were you in quarantine? You said you just, you're just getting out of quarantine. Yeah, I was in quarantine because I had been exposed to someone with COVID and I took the test and tested negative happily. And even though you test negative in Ontario at this point in time, you remain in quarantine for 10 days after the test. The person who I was exposed to who did have COVID was my mother. Um, and of course, it's incredibly stressful for your mother to get COVID at any point in anyone's life. But mom just turned 100 yesterday. So she caught COVID about 10 days before her 100th birthday. And my brother and I had a had a lot of discussions over those 10 days, but one of the underlying themes was that we really hope mom makes it to 100. Um, she had gotten the official letter from the queen that uh, you get when you turn 100. That's something you guys don't get in the States, I guess. Um, but we get a letter from the queen in Canada and we told mom that we'd have to send it back if she didn't make it. And she pulled through and is doing remarkably well. Um, wow. So that's that's great. Okay. Mazel tov on 100 for your mom. Also, thank God she made it through. You're, you're and, speaking Yiddish already. Yes, yes. And what, I cannot imagine what those 10 days were like. I mean, I, that's just unbelievably stressful. She, I'm, she made it through, you said. She's doing better now. So talk to me about how that, those 10 days went. And then what did you do to celebrate? Mom is still living at home in the house that the family moved into in 1964 um, with much of the same furniture and same pictures on the wall. And that's a whole other story. Um, she has 24-hour caregivers, um, one of whom also came down with COVID at the same time because, of course, she was exposed. So she did her quarantine waiting with mom in the house and looked after her during those 10 days. And we were able to get a palliative care doctor and several nurses to come by and take a look at mom, all for free due to our medical system. Oh. And um, so mom, sorry, that was a cheap <laughs> shot. <laughs> You're not nearly as nice as you were. <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, so, I mean, the most stressful thing was that even though I live a 20 minute drive from her because she had COVID and was in quarantine and I didn't, but was in quarantine, I obviously couldn't go to see her. And so it, it, it was very hard. You know, one felt a huge amount of pressure to do something and at the same time, complete impossibility of actually doing anything. But we used the forces of the internet and called on the powers of Amazon and um, got lots of things delivered that then she's come through it. So it's a, a miracle we celebrate. Yeah. The second part of the question, what did we do to celebrate her birthday? I haven't actually done anything yet. I'm just out of quarantine. I'm going up there tomorrow. So um, my girlfriend, that's a whole other story, um, baked the cake um, that I'll be bringing up and I'll be making um, gnocchi stuffed with tomatoes and a Thai coconut soup. And I'm not sure what else to bring up to her for a, a celebratory lunch. That is um, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Can you tell us her first name? Marianne. Marianne. Oh, please wish Marianne yes. the happiest of birthdays from me. And I'm going to just go ahead and speak for everybody who's listening to this podcast because, wow, that's goals. Not just to yes. reach a hundred, but to have your family there with you and, and intact in whatever way possible, caring for you and showing you love. I mean, that's amazing. I told mom, you came through the Holocaust, you can come through this. And she did. Wow. So are you are you retired at this point? It, it depends how you define retired. They've stopped paying me for the work I do, okay. but there doesn't seem to be much less work than there ever was. So, you know, am I retired? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so, I collect a pension, so maybe that defines me as retired. Are you still teaching? That, again, I have two um, writing groups that I run, and I'm a service leader at a Unitarian congregation, which is a lot like teaching. You come up and you introduce what's going to happen today, and then you call on the music director to lead the music, and you call on the minister to deliver the message, and you call on people to come and share joys and concerns. Um, so it's sort of like teaching, but and I do a lot of tech stuff mm -hmm. on Zoom, of course, as we all do these days. But um, no, I'm not formally teaching anymore. Okay, good. Good for you. Uh, Except for the writing groups. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing I think people should know about you is that you're a really great photographer. And and I don't just mean, you know, good as in technically good. I mean, you are quite artistic with your with your photography. It's some, It's very different from anything I've ever seen. Did you ever do that professionally or has it always just been your hobby? It certainly has always been a hobby. I had friends um, with whom I did photography who went into it professionally and they wound up spending their summers going to a lot more weddings than I ever wanted to go to doing wedding photography. Uh -huh. um, so I occasionally have photography shows and people are kind enough to buy some of the pictures that are at those shows. So in that sense, it's professional. It doesn't you know, pay for itself. And it's, um, it's actually, it's a spiritual practice. My minister defined what it was, which is I go out in the morning, um, usually around sunrise, and there's no one around. And I walk along the lake shore and I take pictures of nature. And it forces me to be out of my head and thinking about what I'm going to do and to really be present and see things. So that I'll walk through a park 
I've walked through 50 times before and think, well, there's nothing new here. But if I can bring myself to really be present and see, there's always new things there. And then I take the photographs and I take them into a whole bunch of stuff that is probably the word Photoshop includes a lot of programs that aren't Photoshop. I mostly work in Topaz. I use Photoshop as well. And I, I, I do things to the photographs to reveal what's really underneath them and what's there. And, and that's the fun part of it. Yeah, so. yeah. That's what I mean. I mean, uh, it's not a technical, I mean, obviously there's technical aspects to it, but you are an, like an artist with a camera is is more how I would frame it. And I don't I don't see that very often, actually. I see a lot of people that take technically really good photos, but you have kind of taken it to a completely different level. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, the good ones work that way. There's, I went through a really rough two years, three years now, really. Three years ago, this January 27th, my wife died. And about eight months later, our dog died. And one of the things that got me through the grief was creativity, was writing about the experience and taking photographs that reflected, that tried to communicate the emotion. And doing that was tremendously helpful for me because it both forced me to be present with the emotion as opposed to running off to play Candy Crush and hiding from it. And it was a way of being creative and doing things in the world. So that was... Um, totally wonderful. Uh, have you always considered yourself an artist? I, I know your wife was an amazing artist. No, my claiming that term for myself came surprisingly late. I thought of myself as a teacher, I, you know, and I taught photography and did photography myself, but I mostly thought of it as a way of sort of documenting people I liked in interesting places I'd been. And I did functional writing, but then I started teaching a teaching a creative writing course. And one of the rules I set myself was I would do whatever assignment I gave to my students as well and share my results with them so they could see what I was doing as I could see what they were doing. And, um, and gradually, as I did more photography and did more writing, I, I began to realize that this was a way of getting in touch with some really deep part of me that I wasn't accessing anyway. There's a wonderful Balinese saying, we have no art. We do everything as well as we can. So I began to just try to really focus on the words I was writing or the images and how they could be made better. And, and that became an excuse to buy lots of wonderful programs that could help me make them better. And you've seen the results. Yes. Excellent. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. I have really made it sort of a priority, especially this year to to allow myself to try things creatively uh you know i think i think we have very limited ideas like you said this balinese quote is so perfect because i think we have really specific ideas about what it means to be creative or an artist and and i think in reality some of the most amazing and beautiful things can happen if we approach everything you know with the beginner's mind and allow ourselves to experiment and just try things and see what happens and detach from the the product of it i think we have a really nasty habit in our society at least of trying to make everything into a product and whether it's a product for sale or not has nothing to do with it it can't just be done for the sake of doing it and uh and i and that's just not how you, it's not how you explore 
your creativity in a very good way. The great danger, I think, is is starting to do things on autopilot. I taught at one particular school for 15 years, about a 25-minute drive from where I live. And there'd be days that would be horrified to realize I was pulling into the parking lot. I had no memory of anything that had happened during that drive. It was completely autopilot that was steering the car. And, you know, autopilot was okay. I never hit anything. But, um, but the thing about being creative is that you're completely focused on what you're doing and how you're doing it. You're not doing it this way because you did it this way last time, as opposed to manufacturing something where you find a good way to do it and you set up the machine and then it turns out 10 million of them that look exactly the same. If you're being creative, you're really present and focused on how can I make, make this different from anything else that's ever happened. So that's that's the pull. Yeah, for sure. I feel like a lot of what's wrong in the modern world is that we're so distracted that we we're, we are trying to do too many things at one time physically and mentally and this is actually a practice like you said that becomes yes it's a creative practice but it's also a spiritual practice in uh in focusing on a moment and allowing ourselves to really put our full selves into it and see what comes out of it. The problem is though, that you really have to make opportunities for that because it's easy to go an entire day without without spending a moment on something. Yes, and of course, spirituality needs creativity in it or it just becomes rote and a set of rules, which I know you know a lot about <laughs> experiencing that. <laughs> Indeed. I would love to talk to you a little bit more about spirituality, actually, um, because I do think that we met through the interfaith work I was doing. And you're Jewish, but, you know, part of an Unitarian community, also very well read and a deep thinker. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on where we are right now as a not just as, as a Western society, but globally in our spiritual development. And I mean that as somebody who has, who is rapidly losing my fight against agnosticism. So my personal background, my, my parents are, are Jewish and I was raised Jewish. My spiritual practice is indigenous. Um, I'm a pipe holder in an indigenous tradition. I used to go to sweat lodges before, of course, all the sweat lodges were closed because being in a tight, confined, dark, humid place with a lot of people is not allowed these days. And my community is Unitarian Universalist, which is a liberal, left liberal group that um, allows for a wide range of different spiritualities. So there are Christian Unitarians and pagan and agnostic and atheist. Um, the other significant thing I bring to the conversation is that I taught world religions for 20 years in high school. And um, I was teaching in a school of 1500 that was a regional center for English as a second language. So about one third of our students were born outside of Canada. There were 93 different first languages in the school. And whatever religion I would be covering, um, there would be students who had been raised in that religion. So it was a very lively, vibrant class. Um, I always thought that if I had the energy, if I 
being willing to put the time in. Rather than teaching the course as I did, which is dividing up, you know, okay, we're studying Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, the different religions. It would be interesting to look at traditionalist religions versus progressive religions, where a traditionalist religion believes that the world needs to adjust to the truth that is in the religion. So if things are forbidden, then they can't be allowed. And there are traditionalist branches in every religion I've looked at. And then there's progressive branches, which believe that the religion needs to adapt to the way the world is changing. And there's Gnostic branches in every religion where you go out and you have a direct experience of that which is larger than you and outside of you. And that direct experience determines where you go from here. Um, whether it's a vision quest in an indigenous tradition or whatever words we give to it. So all religions have those three different branches. And for me, defining myself as being interested in progressive and Gnostic branches of religion, rather than narrowing it down to this religion as opposed to that religion, um, made things work well. A story that is I know I've told it to you, but it's too good a story not to tell to your listeners, was my last year of teaching in a high school when two lovely young women, hijabi, came in and asked me to be the staff director to the Muslim Student Association. And, you know, I knew it was two years before retirement. I was sort of starting to slow down as I approached the runway. I didn't want to pick up new assignments. Um, and I explained all this, and they explained to me that you know, they knew and respected how much I knew about Islam, which as the only Jewish teacher in the school, I took as a real compliment. And that was why I had to be the one to do it. And they explained that there was very little work involved. I just had to get a room for Friday prayers and explain what Friday prayers were to the staff who didn't know. So you know, it was almost nothing. And of course I could do it. And um, so I gave in. And the date was um, September 9th, 2001, two days before September 11th, wow. um, when I agreed to do this. And so two days later, the job description got changed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and we wound up putting on, you know, huge discussions for the school about what Islam taught and why people who fly planes into buildings are not representative of Muslims and putting on plays and bringing in speakers and putting on projects about um, Israel and Palestine. And, you know, I'm still good friends with a number of the people I met through that and in touch with them. And it, it was wonderful. It was one of the great experiences I had. Wow. Um, but um, yes. So that's that's my spiel on religion. <laughs> yeah. No, I I have actually come to do that informally in my mind instead of doing the traditional silos of religion. Mm. It has become more about a tension between progressive and traditional or orthodoxy. Do you think because you are a progressive person, I mean politically at least, do you think that those two aspects of religion are necessary 
because they're they the tension can get incredibly hard sometimes and and we also know that at a certain point something's got to give right like there are absolutely things as a progressive person that I look at in traditional religion and I'm like, that is going to have to go at some point. <laughs> like we're not going to be able to dehumanize people uh, forever. It, it's going to have to be jettisoned if, if this religion continues to be on the planet. I guess, I mean, there are certainly religions that have broken into many multiple little sub-religions. Hinduism really is not any one religion. It's, it, it's a huge number of different religions that the British called Hinduism because it was the religion that was practiced when they made India a colonial uh, subject. Um, but I think taking on trying to change a religion is, is a way to condemn oneself to heartache because it's like trying to get a, an oil tank to, to suddenly make a, a leftward turn. You know, it's slow and it takes generations and gradually, you know, we do our work and it, it helps to move things on. We, um, coming out in some ways of the experience of the Muslim Student Association, I joined a group called Tikkun in Toronto, mm -hmm. um, whose goal it was to improve the relationships between Jews and Muslims, particularly around um, the political events that were happening in the Middle East. And then after we'd solved that problem, we weren't sure what we were gonna do <laughs> next. But, uh... <laughs> and we realized that possibly the, the only thing that Israeli and Palestinians have in common is that both really resent people in North America telling them what they should be doing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> <So true. laughs> you know because you aren't here you don't know our experience who the hell are you to tell us exactly what we should be doing how to deal with it um so we decided that our job was to work with jewish and muslim populations here and after a few experiences we went to places where people would start screaming at one another who had killed more babies and it was just the kind of frustration I know you've experienced in political work you do. What we decided the only thing we could do was we all wrote our stories. Our stories are Israel stories, which was when I was a kid, this was how I thought about Israel. And then I went through these experiences um, and now this is how I think. Um, and then we would go in to meet with a group of Muslims or a group of Jews and we would tell our stories and we would ask them to tell their stories and they would tell their stories. And then we had something real we could talk about as people, you know, because no one could say to me that that's not your story. That isn't what happened. Um, no, this is my story. This is who I am. And, and hearing their stories opened me up in a way that I hadn't been opened up before. So I, I think telling our own story is, is how we change things. Um, you know, and there are people who won't be changed. I mean, I'm not totally naive about this, but you know, it's like one of the things that many traditionalist religions have in common is a perspective that women should be subservient to men. Exactly. And yes. Yes. Right. And um, 
So telling your story about how that was limiting. My telling my story about, you know, I had a pet and I loved my pet and I had a wife and I loved my wife, but I never got the two confused, you know. <laughs> I expected my pet to do what I told him to do and some of the times he did. And um, I expected my wife to challenge me and when I didn't do stuff I should be doing and make me a stronger and better person. And she was very good at doing that. Um, so just sharing our personal experience, our lived experience as best we can with people who are able to listen to that and share theirs without demanding that we pretend that theirs is the only one that counts. That's, yeah. that's what we do. Yeah, I think the challenge comes not not even in the because uh, I, I do think that for the majority of, you know, our human history, people have smudged lines and created nuance in all kinds of ways. But I think that there are and, and I say this, especially in something like Judaism and Islam, which are like legalistic traditions, there are things that are, you know, like it is really hard to change the actual structure of the religion, right? They're very text-based and those texts are considered infallible. There are entire structures of how to interpret texts and uh, laws built on those texts. And, and often the people who remain in charge of those texts are a very specific kind of person with a very specific kind of uh, identity. And so it's re that's that's kind of where my frustration has has been is that you know yay we live in a society where you know we all get to choose whatever we believe and if I don't like the way that my religious this religious group is behaving I can go live in another you know or participate in another community uh, with like-minded people and and yes we can have these kinds of exchanges but the reality is that there will as long as there are certain things within certain traditions that are unchanged and unchallenged, there will always be a safe haven for people who are going to mistreat other people and feel justified and in fact righteous for doing so, right? The, the, the subjugation of women and uh, mistreating uh, GLBTQ folks and things like that. And so I th that's where my frustration is and I feel like I've spent a lot of time, you know, and add to that, that those folks make no secret about the fact that they don't consider anyone else who are, who are doing that, you know, what are, who, who have beliefs outside of that to be legitimate, right? So you can be a Muslim who believes in, you Absolutely. know, and, yes. but, but I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been told I'm not quote unquote real. <laughs> I'm not a real Muslim if I believe that. Uh, or if I dress that way, or if I say that, right? So, I mean, that's that's where my frustration lies. And it is enough, like I completely, I spent a lot of years, Peter, a lot of years defending religion. And I really, I feel really, I'm at the point now where I get it. I get why people are like, fuck it. I'm done with this. But I mean, baby in bathwater here, the the mission statement that our Unitarian Church has is to promote spiritual growth and shared action for the care of the world. So spiritual growth is, is, is your personal part. Spiritual growth for the care of the world encompasses other things and 
shared action. But so that's about as far from the traditionalist perspective as you can get. But there are so many wonderful things that a religion can offer, a community that cares about you, that helps you when you're down, that gives you support, and that works together to do good things in the world and make it a better world. And so when I hear people say, you know, so-and-so said this and it's completely absurd and that's what all religion is like. No, there is, there's the experiential branch, whether it's the Sufis in Islam or the Kabbalists in Judaism, or one of the things I love about um, indigenous work is that it's personal. You go into a sweat lodge and you learn something. No one tells you what the answer is. That's a place you find it yourself or you go on a vision quest and you get your own personal vision. Um, it's not that, okay, here's the book of visions and it says in chapter 22, verse six, that you have to do this, <laughs> you know. Um, so so I, I think there's a danger in allowing the people who hold traditionalist views to define what the religion is. Um, I know I went on a trip to Israel once and I, I was really curious how I was going to react to it because I had relatives who said, you know, I never understood what it meant to be Jewish until I went to Israel. You know, it'll change your life. And I've never been so alienated from the religion as I was in Israel. I went through Mia Sharon, which is the ultra-Orthodox area of Jerusalem, where they throw stones at you if you aren't properly dressed and you're not allowed to drive a car on a Sabbath, and no one takes photographs of anything. And it looks, you know, if you were filming a movie set in 17th century Russia, except for the fact that you can't use cameras, it would be the perfect backdrop. <laughs> um, you know, and I was totally alienated. And I looked at this and thought, this has nothing to do with me. This has nothing to do with who I am, my values, my life. But as I met Reconstructionist Jews, and we talked about looking at the story of the Garden of Eden and eating the apple as a metaphor for what it means to become human, that you take on your own knowledge of good and evil rather than accepting it. And that it's a story of liberation, not a story of sin. You know, you can take the work and find creative interpretations that make one's own life richer. And so I think there's a lot to be said for spirituality and religion is just a group of people who share some of a spiritual vision. Um, even if that vision is as loose as you've got to figure it out on your own. Yeah. This ties in nicely with your comments earlier about creativity and, and religion and the importance of having creativity in religion, which is not always encouraged. It's just not. Absolutely. In the, the Jewish Passover ceremony, there's a Seder plate that has a number of traditional items on it. And um, so the traditional items are sort of um, uh, horseradish, which is bitter and a bitter, um, bitter herbs to remind us of the bitterness of being slaves in Egypt and um, a lovely mush of grated apple and part raisins that looks roughly like mortar and some um, uh, matzo bread because we had matzo. And in recent years, there started to be an orange on a Seder plate after a traditionalist Jewish rabbi said, women can no more be rabbis than an orange can be on the Seder plate. 
whereupon all of us started putting oranges on our Seder plates. And now there is an olive on many people's Seder plates to represent the struggle and need for liberation for Palestinians in Israel and Palestine. So the Seder plate, if it's just a static collection of five items, and we talk about this historically dubious Moses leading people across the Red Sea, I mean, I love the movie, but I don't believe it's historically accurate. <laughs> um, it's you know, a good if movie. we look at it, it's a great movie. Yes, absolutely. How do we liberate ourselves from the ways that we are enslaved? And the, the, your Pharaoh can be internal. You know, we are all enslaved to things that we need to be liberated from. And looking at it as a challenge to liberate ourselves, then all of a sudden it becomes this really powerful, creative tradition that we continue with, that we can talk about liberation struggles for indigenous peoples, for black people, for LGBTQ people, for all the places where enslavement is practiced around us, where things need to change, rather than just saying, well, I'm leaving it all behind because I don't believe what these traditionalist people do with it. Take it and do, do something else with it. Yeah. Do you feel that, what what is it, because, you know, as you were describing earlier your definition of what a religion is, which is, you know, a group of people with, you know, shared spiritual values coming together and trying to do good things together. What is it about religion that makes it more valuable to that effort than any other kind of secular convening of like-minded people? I guess for me, when I think of secular, um, you know, when I went down to MIT, I, I was seriously secular. You know, if, if I couldn't measure it and weigh it and classify it, it didn't exist. Um, but this was in the mid-60s, and I encountered a lot of things over the next few years that helped broaden my horizons of what didn't, didn't exist. And I find that when I work with spirituality and try and find a way to align myself with a spiritual force in the world, I feel and become more powerful. So I would say when I was a teenager, my definition of religion would have been either they're true or they're not true. That's the binary. And now I would say either they're useful or they're not useful. And each of us needs to answer that for ourselves. So if I find things in a spiritual tradition that are useful to me, then, then it's worth following up because that makes me stronger and more grounded and more able to do things. And the secular world can have that. There are certainly humanists who are members of Unitarian congregations. Uh, humanism can certainly do that. At its weakest, secularism just becomes, you know, how are we going to make a profit in the next quarter? And, and, and that's, that's not going to lead us anywhere we need to go. Looking at the, the world, looking at the environmental issues we're faced, starting to think in terms of Gaia and pagan spirituality, where we see the world as one interconnected web of living beings, um, makes us more able to do the kind of political work that needs to be done in that area. So I would say just spirituality can make one stronger and more, more able to do what needs to be done. 
talk to me just a little bit briefly before we have to close out, uh, because I know it's an important part of your family history. Talk to me about what it was like to be raised by Holocaust survivors. Well, my mother grew up in Germany and got out of Germany in 1939. My father grew up in Vienna, Austria, and was a student at Cambridge University in England. Um, when Hitler took over Austria, mom fled from Germany to England, and that was where they met. Um, I was, they were married in Cairo um, after the war, where dad then was with the British Army. Um, so all of the family that was in Austria and Germany that survived got out, um, and a surprisingly high percentage did that. We lost seven people or so in the Holocaust and at least 30 or 40 got out. Um, and we started having, we have a tradition of family meetings. This is on my father's family side, um, where we come together every year. And that started around 1880 and it broke off during the war. And it started again in 1947 um, in New York City, where there were a number of people. And I remember from my early, you know, when I was four or five years old in the early 50s, going down to family meetings and more and more people came and I became the keeper of the family tree, which was where my computer geek skills could be put to use. Um, and so every year, 60, 70 of us gather together and, um, and talk about what's happened in our lives and how we're doing and wow. share things. So one of the, and in a certain way, it's as celebrating that we remain family, we survived um, Hitler. Um, but it's also, it meant growing up, my sense of family included people from all sorts of different countries, from Austria, from England, from Canada, from the US, from Colombia, from Australia, and probably a couple of others I'm not thinking of and from all over. So family wasn't one place. Family was from multiple places. And while we all started out as Jewish, I would say probably maybe a third of the family now is practicing Jewish and a third are some flavor of Christian and another third are agnostic, atheist, other. But growing up, it meant my sense of family included people of different races, religions, and cultures, but we were family. And so that was something that in a certain sense is an inheritance of the Holocaust, but it's a very rich, powerful one because there was never that sense of, there can be a very narrow sense of family. You know, if you come from the village five miles over, you're not family, you know, <laughs> at its worst. Um, so I grew up with, with the opposite of that. And last August, I helped set up a Zoom conference where we had 90 people from all over the world um, sharing a Zoom conference over three days and, you know, doing different things and sharing and talking and showing videos. And um, so we've even survived the pandemic in terms of our family meetings. That's amazing. I, I will, you know, beg one more question from you because it's a very important question. And uh, I think you're in a really good position to answer it. And that is what we see happening right now, not just in the US, but around the world with 
this rise of right-wing authoritarianism in various places and the coordinated efforts across the globe of people who subscribe to those ideologies. As someone whose family is, is a survivor of that, what wisdom can you give us as we look at at what we're facing right now because and do you think it's an apt do you think that we're do you think that the concern is overblown first of all and second of all do you think that there are um, similarities between what your family escaped and what we're facing now and and then finally what do we do <laughs> what do we do <laughs> Have you tried turning your government off and back on again? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, one of the one of my deepest regrets is um, a conversation I had with my wonderful, wonderful grandmother um, when I was about seventeen or eighteen, and I was asking her why she didn't hate Germans, and she said, "You know, she hated Hitler, and she hated." of course, what had been done to Jews in Germany, but it wasn't the fault of Germans that the same thing could happen anywhere. It could happen in the States. She was an American. It could happen in Canada. And with all the wisdom that 16-year-olds know themselves to have, I, I said, no, no, it could never happen here. Um, we have laws against it. And she looked at me and said, we had those laws in Germany too. And um, I can't go and apologize to her, but yes, she, she was of course absolutely right. And there are huge similarities between what happened then and what we see happening now. And we don't know that history will go the same way. And I certainly don't think anything is inevitable, but um, Adam Gopnik had a really good article in the current New Yorker where he talks about how democracy is the anomaly. Through history, most of the world has been um, ruled by authoritarian right-wing dictators. Um, so it's not the question of why all of a sudden are these coming back. It's what happened to make us have democracy for a while and how can we preserve that? Um, I think talking to people, telling your story and listening to their story because um, it is, it is very easy and certainly you read my Facebook feed, you know, I've done it, you know, putting up a very funny comment, mocking those people with whom one disagrees politically. Um, but we're all on a lifeboat and these are the people we need to figure out how are we going to share the resources and the lifeboat with if, if we're going to manage to survive and just doing our best to, to make that happen which, I mean, it isn't the blazing political leader speech that some people would give, but, you know, it's just working with other people and doing things that increase our and our community's resilience, supporting one another, um, doing podcasts with people who you think should be heard is a wonderful thing that you are doing, which I am deeply grateful for the privilege of being part of. And um, 
yeah, we just one step at a time. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, uh, I think that's right. I think the, uh, I think the answer has always been to humanize one another as much as possible and to increase our empathy and, uh, and to look at ourselves as part of a, a whole instead of factioning ourselves off as just individuals or just religions or just nations and or just political parties or whatever it is that we like to do and um and i think the hardest thing that i've had to realize as an adult <laughs> right is that there really is no guarantee right there are no guarantees we yeah. really could lose it all and uh and so all you can do is figure out what is right what you know what you truly believe is right and who are doing who who's doing work and who's doing art and who's doing things that are contributing to uh to the values that you believe in and um and and standing with them and supporting it with all your heart because it, it can become so overwhelming when you realize how little control we do have. Um, but, but then I'm increasingly bolstered by my relationships with people like you, who I know are righteous, right? And I don't mean righteous in a religious way. I mean, righteous in a moral and ethical and, and, um, and truly human way that you that you want what's good, not just for yourself, but for other people, even people who aren't like you. And that is what keeps me moving forward. And, um, and so for that, for who you are, and, and for being so willing to share who you are with me and other people, I'm truly grateful, Peter. It's been a huge pleasure. And Someday, I hope we actually get to meet in person. It would be wonderful. Yes, and, inshallah, but, as we say. Yes, <laughs> yes. inshallah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay. Right. Well, please be safe. Please give your mother our love and congratulations. And, um, and I will talk to you again on the internet. Yes, absolutely. Be well, dear wife. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.